that we're going to continue on in our series titled Teach Us to Pray. It's the second uh, part of a series that we're discovering what does it look like to be a people who are formed in prayer. And one of the things I wanted to say at the get-go that I don't think I got to last week is that prayer sort of brings to mind the reality that there is a God who wants to connect and commune with you. That is, uh, definitionally, I think we shared last week that prayer to me, as I understand the scriptures and the, the things that I study, is prayer is this intentional communion that we get to experience with God. And one of the undergirding ideas that sort of we have to grab a hold of is the idea that God wants to commune with you, that God wants to commune with us, the church, that there's a longing in the heart of God to be with his people. This is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And it is in prayer that we have access to this communion with God, but we have to know that God longs to be with us. And prayer is, interestingly, one of those things that that if you've never prayed, if you've never had faith, you ought to know that God wants to commune with you, that God hears your prayers. Christian, not Christian, wherever it is that you come from, there is a God who wants to hear from you, and it happens through prayer. There are some of us perhaps in this room who we've been praying for years, we've been following Jesus for a number of decades and it feels as though our prayer lives have dried up, the well is dry. And one of the things that prayer does is it invites us again and afresh into the very heart and life of God. For some of us, prayer has been a tremendous thing. We've been just crushing it in prayer, right? Maybe the 1% of us, you're just slaying it when it comes to prayer. But we're reminded, even when prayer has been that good, that there's so much more, there's infinitely more that God has for us as we commune with him. And it is a joy to know that there is a God who wants to be with us. In so many ways, it's a summary of part of the gospel is there is a God who's working to the redemption of all things, and so much of that happens in our lives of prayer. Okay, that was just like extra credit intro stuff. All right, now to the main story here this morning. Ever since Levi's been born, Paige and I, we have found it difficult and a rough time to map out when we ought to have our sort of normalized exercise routines. So we've kind of both put on a few pounds over the past couple of years because of this. It was so much simpler before we had children, right? Our schedules were sort of our own to dictate what it is that we do with them. But now that we have Levi, right, there's always this other person that we have to be mindful of when we go and work out. So recently I had this brilliant idea that we could both wake up early in the morning and we could alternate days of the types of workouts that we do. So we would wake up and I would run and Paige would lift at home because Levi is still sleeping. And then the next day, Paige could run and I could lift and we could just, you know, alternate, you know, six days a week. That would be the ideal. That didn't happen this week. But... But one of the things about waking up early in the morning is it's a little bit easier for Paige to do that. She's a lot more disciplined than me. I love my sleep a lot more than she does. And so I have invited her even this week, like, hey, wake me up, you know, at 5.30 whenever you get up so that I could, you know, exercise and do this whole thing. And so each morning, Paige sort of gets up, she gets all of her workout clothes on, and she kind of comes over to my bedside and she says, Aaron, it's 5.30. Get up. It's time to work out. And nine times out of 10, this results in my continued sleeping in the morning. Sometimes my body resists it so much that she said like, 
you told me that you were awake. And it was like in my unconscious, right? Like I was just like still sleeping and my body was like, I'm going to still sleep, but I'm going to get this woman out of here. Yeah, I'm awake. I'm okay. Okay. And I don't remember any of that, but we kind of go through this routine. Aaron, get up. It's time to work out. And I want you to consider just for a moment the possibility that we often approach God and our prayer this way, in the way that Paige approaches me in the morning to get me up. You see, frequently we pray as though God is sleeping through the work that he ought to be doing in the world. And that it's our job to try and get God up in the morning so that he can do something in the world that is good. It's our job to get God up. It's time to work out, God. You gotta do something this morning. You see, when we treat prayer as though, or when our prayers, I should say, are filled with nothing but requests and petitions before God. God, provide healing for this person in this circumstance. God, I need that job. God, would you be with this person what they're going through in their lives? God, be with the pastor. You know that he really needs you this morning, right? But whenever we sort of approach prayer in this way, it's as if we're kind of waking up God. Like, hey, you didn't know that these things were going on. Maybe you should do something about them, God. Now, let me be clear. I think scripture instructs us to bring our prayers and petitions and requests before God. I believe that there are times when God's action doesn't come about because God's people do not pray. And we will be spending, in fact, one of the weeks in this series talking about intercession and petition and how we do that as the people of God. But when we limit the scope of prayer to these kinds of prayers, we treat prayer as a sort of motivational speech that we could give to God to encourage him to get up and do something that he wouldn't do otherwise. But what, what if prayer didn't work that way, centrally? Like, could it be that God was always at work in the world? Could it be that God is always active in bringing about redemption and healing and provision and justice in the world? Could it be that God is already ongoing all of the time, persistently and slowly renewing all things in the world? Could it be that prayer is not just a means by which we ask God to be active in the world, but the primary means by which God's people become active in the world? As Gordon T. Smith writes, he's one of my favorite writers and authors, he says this way, he says, without doubt, the circumstances of our lives will inform our prayers, but perhaps what should be happening is that our prayers would inform our lives, that our praying would alter our living, that our prayer would shape the contours and content of our daily experience. And this morning, I want us to consider how taking seriously the way Jesus instructed his disciples to pray might actually invite us to participate in the transformational work that God is doing in your life and in our city and in the world. And let me also just say that a lot of the insights that I'm gleaning for this morning's message is from this guy, Gordon T. Smith. Um, one of the things that I think sort of undergirds our series is that we learn how to pray. And I have learned how to pray I didn't just like, hey, I'm like super spiritual and I know how to do all of these things, right? And this guy, Gordon T. Smith, has been one of the people who taught me tremendously how to pray through some of his works. And so there is some stealing going on in thoughts uh, this morning a little bit. But if we examine the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, 
we can quickly identify that the center of the Lord's prayer is the petition, your kingdom come, and its synonymous request that follows it, your will be done. You see, everything that follows in the Lord's prayer hinges on this single request, God, may your kingdom come in the world. Daily bread, the forgiveness of sins, the capacity to forgive people who have wronged you, perhaps even your enemies, Jesus would say. Living holy lives that are unstuck by sin and temptation in your lives, all of it flows from the single petition to, for God to bring his kingdom into the world and into our lives. We might say that the Lord's Prayer is essentially about teaching Jesus' disciples how to pray for the kingdom of God to come. You see, to pray for God's kingdom to come is a way of praying that God's will be done in the world, on earth, as it is in heaven. And to say that God's kingdom coming into the world matters is probably the most profound understatement that we have in the scriptures. Is that to the scriptures, there's probably nothing that matters more than God's kingdom coming to earth. The notion of the kingdom of God, it permeates the whole story of the Old Testament. And the coming of the kingdom of God was a central message of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. We see this no clearer than in Jesus' first declaration in Mark's gospel. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As the kingdom of God is talked about in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the question that we have to sort of wrestle with, I think at times, is like, what is the kingdom of God all about? Like, we hear this phrase, but it's almost like one of those churchy, religious, Christianese words that we use it so much that we don't quite understand what it is. We just say it, right? And I want to sort of suggest to you this morning that the kingdom of God is a shorthand way of talking about the place and time where God's will is done without obstruction, The kingdom of God are the places where God's will is done without obstruction. You see, when it comes in its fullness, the kingdom of God, it will heal and restore creation. Justice will triumph over injustice, and all things will come under the lordship of Jesus. We get no clearer picture of the kingdom of God than in Revelation chapter 21 that describes a time and a world when God will wipe away every tear from every weeping eye where there will be no more death, where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain because God has made all things new. God has restored and redeemed all things. And the kingdom of God is not merely something that we hope for on behalf of the world. The kingdom of God is something that we personally long and yearn for. That is, we long and yearn for God to heal and redeem and restore and give meaning to our lives, to make us something new, to make us something whole. And this is why Jesus describes the kingdom of God like a person who finds treasure buried in a field because it's valuable. It's why Jesus tells the parable of the merchant who finds the most refined jewels in the world as a way of describing that sensation that you have when you discover the kingdom of God for yourself. He compares it even to someone receiving a great family inheritance. Don't we all want one of those, right? And, and Jesus says, when you discover and find the kingdom of God, it's like finding the most valuable thing that you can have in your world. When we discover The kingdom of God on a personal level, its value is beyond measure and the joy that it brings satisfies all of our cravings. And at the heart of the gospel message is that 
the kingdom of God is breaking into the world through the person of Jesus. Jesus reveals to us what it looks like to live a life of complete obedience and surrender to God's will totally. No obstruction in Jesus' life to surrendering himself to the kingdom of God, to God's will. And his life bears the marks of what life lived in the kingdom looks like. You see, the resulting life is a life that is lived with great moral integrity, a life marked by bringing outsiders and making them insiders, a life filled with compassionate acts and acts of mercy, a life that is light in the midst of darkness. And what's striking is that the life that Jesus lived, he invites us to live in him. Let me say that again. The life that Jesus lived, he invites us to live in him. It is a way of saying, there is, Jesus wants you to live in the same way that he, like, I, I was reading a tweet the other day, I go on Twitter from time to time, and there was this sort of person who, who was writing something, and they said, the world has never asked the church to be less like Jesus, <laughs> The greatest critics of religion and of Christian faith, they have never asked us to look less like Jesus. In fact, the opposite is true. They want us to look more like Jesus, and this should be at the heart of what we want for ourselves as well. But here's the thing. Prayer is the key to being formed into Christ-likeness. As one pastor wrote, if transformation into Christ-likeness does not happen through our prayers, it likely does not happen at all. We might say, if our participation in God's kingdom and renewing and restoring and redeeming work in the world isn't central to our life of prayer, then probably we're not going to engage with God's kingdom on any level. And I want to suggest this morning that prayer isn't centrally about getting God to work. Prayer is about experiencing and doing God's ongoing kingdom work. You see, God isn't passively watching the world go by. God is redeeming, God is healing, God is restoring all things to be new. God has called the church to join him in this work and it's in prayer that we are formed into Christ's likeness so as to participate in the kingdom work already going on in the world. When our prayers center on God's kingdom come, we are formed into Christ's likeness and set into motion our participation in his kingdom. And I wanna suggest this morning just a framework for thinking about what does it look like to be a people who pray for the kingdom of God? What does it look like for us to be a people whose prayer life and the kingdom of God are intersecting so that we can experience and engage the kingdom work that God is already doing? That framework is made up of three sort of movements, if you will. Thanksgiving, confession, and discernment. That is to say simply, Our prayers ought to intentionally incorporate all three of these things if we're going to pray kingdom-shaped prayers. In Psalm 100, the psalmist writes this, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. It's important that we begin our prayers with thanksgiving, and I want to show you why. I think I have an image up here. This is called a Rubens vase or vase if you want to be really fancy. You might be familiar with this image. It's known as Rubens vase. The the image was created by a Danish psychologist, Edgar Rubin. And the question that you always have to wrestle with when you see this image is what do you first see? The vase 
or the candlestick, some people think that it is, or two faces looking at one another. Let's take a quick poll. How many of you, at first sight, you see the faces looking at each other? You can raise your hand. Okay, all right. How many of you see the vase or the candlestick? Interesting. That's like 50-50. That's fascinating. But one of the fascinating things about this image is that it is impossible to see both the vase and the faces simultaneously at the same time. You can switch back and forth between one or the other, but you can't simultaneously hold both images in your mind. Your brain can only jump back between them. Faces, face, vase, faces, one or the other, but never both at the same time. In the same way that we can only hold one image in our minds at a time, I believe our prayers keep our focus, I believe thanksgiving are the prayers that keep our focus in prayer where it ought to be. You see, the temptation in prayer is to focus our attention on all that God is not doing on all of the ways that we wish God was more present, more active, more attentive, and doing what we think God ought to do. We see see all that is wrong and all that is lacking in our lives and in the world. God, would you heal that person of their sickness? We've been praying this prayer for three years. God, I've been praying for my kid for years and years and years, and they're still wrestling and struggling and going through difficulty. God, my marriage is just a mess and I don't know what's going on. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know where you're going. God, there are things going on in our city. There's homelessness. There's addiction. There's all sorts of things. And what are you up to, God? If you're not doing those things, what are you doing? And this becomes the focus of our prayer lives, all that God is not doing. But the problem with this way of thinking is that we often miss the ways God is active. We miss the ways that God is moving We miss the ways that God is attending to needs. We miss the ways that God is redeeming and healing and restoring things in our midst. And the brilliance of thanksgiving is that it draws our attention and focus to see what God has done and is already doing. And when our focus is there, we defeat the temptation to think God is up to nothing in the world. You see, the insistence to live thankfully keeps our attention from being people of complaint and disappointment and keeps us focused on the goodness of God. To pray with thanksgiving is to thank God for God's goodness in general ways, like God, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for salvation. But it too involves thanking God in particular ways for his particular goodness to us. This is why when we got the news that Paige was pregnant, we read Psalm 139. That's fearfully and wonderfully made. We praise you, God, in that particular way for what it is that you have gifted to us and to our families. In the same way, our prayers of thanksgiving ought to focus on the ways that God is at work in your life in particular ways. Our prayers begin with thanksgiving so as to focus us on God's activity in the world. But the second movement in praying kingdom-shaped prayers is that our prayers ought to be oriented towards confession, Jesus' proclamation in Mark that the kingdom of God has come near is immediately followed by the command, repent, (laughs) repent. And it's important for us to start with confession, then move in greater and greater ways. We have to have thanksgiving and then confession in a couple of important ways. But one of them is confession, we're able to do that after thanksgiving because we've already proclaimed the goodness of God. We already know and trust in our thanksgiving that God is active and working in our lives and in the world. And it's from this posture that then we can go before God and say, hey God, this is what's going on. 
It allows confession to remove that element of fear or the shame or the guilt because we've already leaned into the goodness of God in our thanksgiving. Confession is the prayer for personal realignment with God's kingdom. It isn't just like trying to get something off of our chest, like, oh man, I, I felt horrible about this for, for weeks, God. I just need to get this off my chest. It's about realigning ourselves for the sake of the kingdom. Confession is necessary in our kingdom-oriented prayers because it's the way we declare to God, may your kingdom come and may it start with me. One of the things that has amazed me about being a parent of a two-year-old is how irritated and frustrated I can become at a two-year-old. I, I always take people and what they say about parenting with a grain of salt. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're telling me like what parenting is like. Okay, I think it's all a little different. But the terrible twos, I think, is a real thing. Like, that's a real thing. Like, that one is take it to the bank. That happens. Trying to get clothes on trying to play with a toy that I'm tired of playing with after 30 minutes, like let's go get something new, changing diapers, these all become moments in which Levi will sometimes get like super upset. There's frustration, there's crying, there's whining, there's screaming, there's repeating the same phrase over and over and over and over again that just drives you up the wall. But what's astonishing is how there have been moments where his screaming turns into my screaming, where his whining turns into my whining, where his frustration turns into my frustration. And sometimes I have to take a step back and just like, whoo, breathe again, right? Take a deep breath. And I literally will sometimes say to myself and to him, I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting whiny. I'm wanting to scream at a small human being that's on the changing table right now. This isn't going to resolve the situation. And I'll say to Levi, I'm sorry for acting with such immaturity in this moment, right? Because I'm supposed to be the one who's not screaming, whining, and getting frustrated. It's my way of communicating to him, like, may peacefulness and understanding come to this situation. And it's only going to come if I sort of participate and engage with that. It doesn't come because I'm more angry. And confession is this sort of way of realigning ourselves of the intended goal of God's kingdom. You see, when Levi is frustrated and upset and angry, my goal is to try and make things calmer and peaceful in our home, but my way of getting there is often to like get angry and frustrated. Does that make sense a little bit? Rather than removing myself from that and trying to stay calm and trying to get myself realigned with the intended purpose here. And confession works and operates this way. You see, the temptation for so many of us is to bemoan that there's all sorts of things going on in people groups that are just like not fully participating in the church or God's kingdom or in the world. And we want to tell them like you're whining and you're complaining and you're getting angry and you're getting frustrated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But confession is an act that we, tr we say that we trust like God, you're working in all sorts of ways in the world and in people's lives. But when it comes to me, I want to be aligned with what it is that you're wanting to do in my life. I want to take responsibility for my own life and for my own behavior. And to be sure, confession is more than just reporting our sins to God. Confession is the act by which we allow God to examine our lives and reveal to us how we might increase our alignment with his kingdom. This is why the psalmist prays this prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any 
wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is, there are a lot of things about our lives that are not aligned with God's purposes, and we are unaware of it. And we engage with his prayers of confession. We allow God to examine our lives and to reveal those areas in our lives in which we need to increase our engagement with his kingdom in greater and greater ways. The final movement, though, in prayer, kingdom-oriented prayers, is that of discernment. That of discernment. One of my least favorite things about going out to eat is picking my meal. (laughs) It always feels as though there are way too many decisions and choices that are available to me. I particularly hate it when the menu reads like a Harry Potter book, like it's just a giant. It feels like there's 900 pages of items that I can select from, endless number of choices. And this experience isn't all too different from what we at times experience in the church. Between Sunday sermons, personal studies, small groups, conversations with friends, we are bombarded with all of the things we ought to be doing, all of the ways that we ought to be sort of focusing our lives and participating with God. And the prayer of discernment is a way of considering God's particular invitation to you personally of how you ought to participate in God's kingdom. It's a way of deciding what on the menu we ought to give ourselves to intentionally. You see, one of the great barriers, I think, for our participation in God's kingdom work in the world is that the scope of possibilities are are just too great, and they paralyze us from ever doing anything to begin with, right? Homelessness, addiction, kids' ministry, hospitality, small group studies, clean drinking water around the world, missions trips to various continents and countries, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And the scope of God's kingdom work makes it feel like, man, I don't know what exactly I'm supposed to do here, God. What, what thing am I supposed to join you in doing in the world? And the prayer of discernment is how you discover what God is calling you to. How God is calling you to faithful action in his kingdom, in, building, in his kingdom building project in the world. And we have to spend intentional time contemplating and considering and listening, where are those parts that my heart is particularly being stirred, that I want to join you in what's going on there? And it is okay that I don't do everything. You do not have to do everything, church. (laughs) You don't have to be super Christian that tackles every single issue. We'll never get anywhere if we move in that direction. The beautiful thing about the body of Christ is we each have our own part to play. And what we need you to do is just to play your part, to discern the thing that you're supposed to be doing so that when we collectively as a community look out at what God's doing in our church, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're doing that thing over there and this person's doing that thing over there and this is going on in this part of our city, is we have to be a people who find our thing that God is supposed to do. We have to pick our meal. We have to decide on the menu thing for us that God is calling us to. This week, church, along with praying the Lord's Prayer, I want you to continue to do that. We talked about that last week. I want to invite you to pray in these three movements. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray with confession. And pray with discernment. Take a look. Get your head up. See how God is moving in your life and in the world. Spend some time allowing God to examine your heart and your life of where you need greater alignment with him and his kingdom. Spend some moments perhaps contemplating and thinking about what am I supposed to be doing with my life? 
where should I be participating with God's work in the world? And as we persistently pray this way, we will discover that God is doing so much more than we were ever aware of and that God has called you to participate in his work in the world. I want to end with a sort of cheesy little illustration. A couple of years ago, I started wearing sunglasses. I don't know if it's like old age, like affecting my eyes, but I was like, I need to get sunglasses. And outside of just sort of the fashion of sunglasses, I feel like through my wearing of sunglasses, my eyes have this like increased sensitivity to lights where I notice a lot more like, oh my gosh, it's so bright. I cannot, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you have the sunglasses on, you take them off, it's like, oh my goodness, this is so bright. And I found that I need, I need sunglasses now all of the time. I think I'm working my way. I'm gonna need reading glasses soon. Um, but that would be a problem. That's for a different day. But one of the things that as we pray kingdom-oriented prayers as a church is that we find ourselves with a greater sensitivity to what God is doing in the world. Is that we begin to discover that God is in this place, that God is doing something in this world. And as we sort of persistently pray these prayers, we begin to see things that we didn't see before, notice things that we didn't notice before. And my hope is that we as a church, as we pursue God's kingdom in prayer, we increase our participation in his kingdom work in the world. That would be a cool church to be, where we saw God on the move, and like, man, I see it, and I'm going there. We're going there, amen? Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are God who is on the move, that you are God who is active in redeeming and restoring all things. We thank you for the many ways, God, that you have been at work in our own lives, perhaps even over the past few weeks, perhaps over the past few months. And our longing and our desire is for greater sight and participation in what it is that you're doing in the world. And so I ask God that as we pray kingdom-oriented prayers, kingdom-shaped prayers, that you would increase our sensitivity to what it is that you're doing, increase our courage to join you in what it is that you're doing, and that we might see new life in our city, in our relationships, and in the world. Because when your will is unobstructed, amazing, amazing things happen, and we want to be a part of it. We thank you, God, for being this kind of God. And it's your son Jesus' name that we pray, amen.
God, you reign forever and ever. God, you reign. You part the seas. You move the mountains with the words that you say. My song remains. God, you reign. You hold my life. You know my heart and you call me by name. I live to say, God, you God, you reign. God, you reign. Forever and ever. God, you reign. God, you reign. God, you reign forever and ever. God, you reign. God, you reign. God, you reign. Forever and ever, God, you reign. Church, as you pray kingdom-oriented prayers this week, may you find yourselves caught up in the good 